Watermark, brothers and sisters, welcome to the church. As you guys have your seat, I love the fact that I have to interrupt because of all the meet and greet and get them to know each other. That's, that's a gift and a blessing. My name is John Elmore. I'm one of the teaching pastors here at Watermark, and I love being with y'all on Sundays. So just on Friday, it was our son Hill's eight-year-old birthday, and so he wanted to take, he and all his buddies, to an arcade. And so we go to this, like, video game place, you know, Nickelrama, and, and it, is, it is Vegas for children. Frankly, it's grooming children to one day be at Vegas because it's lights and buzzers and tickets. And you, the more tickets you earn, you get to the prize and there's cupcakes and it's just, it's sheer chaos with kids running around and they're spilling their nickels and clamoring for them. I mean, it's just nuts. And in the midst of all of that energy and lights and buzz, I hear one thing, like there's plenty to hear, but I hear one thing like just, draws me, and it's my six-year-old daughter. I mean, it's all boys, 26 of my, my son's friends, and one girl, poor thing. And it's Penny all the way across the arcade going, Daddy! And like, you know, there were probably other kids in there calling for their dads, but when, you, when your daughter in that voice hits your ears, it's like everything goes into slow-mo and blurs out, and I'm just making a beeline for Penny. And so I go to her, and she's frustrated, and I get on my knees beside the, the game, I mean, these nonsense games. I'm like, baby, what's wrong? And first of all, like, all the coin slots are broken. She can't even get the nickels to go in. And she's like, I can't get tickets. And I was like, oh, here, hand me some nickels. And I like lay this game out, tickets start coming out, and then she's got a wad of tickets. So we play together, and she's like, can we go get the prize? So we walk over to the, I mean, it's just junk. It's straight junk. Like, I don't know how much these items cost. And, and, and so it's bouncy balls and bracelets and temporary tattoos and little rainbow things and a little kitty cat. I'm like, I bet she's going for the kitty cat, but she surprised me. She's looking at this glass case, and she like, you know, the guy, the dude behind the counter just checking his phone, not even paying attention. She just like taps on the glass, this one. He's like, all right. Like, slaps it up, and I'm like, what in the world is that? And she's like, fingernails. And she got, she got these like, I mean, one inch, like, goth, emo, <laughs> vampire fingernails. I'm like, what in the world? Who are you going to kill with your fingernails? So, we're driving back, we're on George Bush, you know, going the speed limit, and uh, she's putting on her fingernails. And all of a sudden she starts crying, just like, crying for me, like, daddy, daddy, again. And I'm like, what? And she's like, my pinky fell off. And so I'm like, oh, uh. She's in the back seat in the seat. I'm like, hey, put the pinky nail and then hand me your hand. And so I'm like, you know, it's the trashy adhesive on the, you know, if you're going to get nails, don't get them from the arcade. So. <laughs> I'm pushing her pinky as hard as she can. She's like, okay, it's good. We get home, we're eating pizza. She's like Edward Scissorhands, like. <laughs> but she's delighted that she's got her nails on. Everything's fine. Until I'm with the boys downstairs and all of a sudden I hear crying. I'm like, what is going on? Now I hear my daughter again. I go upstairs, Laura's like, I need help. And Penny has tears streaming down her face with these nails. I'm like, what? And Laura's like, there's a nail in her nose. I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. One, don't pick your nose. Two, don't do it with a cheap fingernail. And so I'm like, all right, Penny, look at the ceiling. I'm holding her head back. Laura's got tweezers and is like, don't move. I mean, she's terrified, still crying. Pen and Laura's like, I can't get it. I was like, all right, I know what to do. I lower her head down. I was like, do not breathe in through your nose. I plug the right nostril. I was like, take a breath through your mouth. 
and then blast as hard as you can through your nose. She goes, just like snot rocket, and out comes the fingernail. <laughs> I just needed to tell somebody, that has nothing to do with anything. <laughs> I was like, dude, if you inhale that, it's going into your brain cavity. Here's the thing. It's exactly what we're gonna talk about today. And in case you're like, what theological gymnastics are you gonna do to make that fit anything? Here's what happened. We're in the midst of chaos. My daughter calls me and I go to her. Then my daughter needs something and she gets a gift. And then she needs help, like real help. And I got her. I am with her until that thing is resolved. And it's what Jesus does in the passage. He calls us. You were called by Jesus, just as my daughter called for me and I brought her into this world with Laura. She's called by me, she calls me. She's, Jesus gifts us. He gifts every believer in the church with gifts. And not just a once and for all gift for the body, but lavish gifts as we walk through this world. And then he keeps us. Like no matter what trial you have, fingernail up the nose or anything else, Jesus is like, I got you. I will keep you to the end. In the passage where you will find called by Jesus, gifted by Jesus, kept by Jesus, is in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 through 9, where's where we're going to spend our time today. And in case you're like, well, did you just like cherry pick that because that's what matched the illustration? No. But rather, for the next five months, through the end of July, we as a church are going to walk through the letter of 1 Corinthians, verse by verse, passage by passage, chapter by chapter, and it's amazing, y'all. It's an amazing letter to the church, for the church, by the Spirit, through Paul, as we are going to walk together and learn. And if you are not on Join the Journey, if you don't have the app or the journal that you can get afterwards, we're reading through the New Testament together as a church, and on Friday providentially, as the Lord would have it, we begin 1 Corinthians. And so God has lined up this whole journey, and so today, 1 Corinthians chapter one. Uh, the other thing you need to know, in case you're like, wait, 1 Corinthians? What, what is Corinthians? And, and what is Corinth? So Corinth was a city in Greece. It was a, in a land isthmus, which is just a land bridge separating the Mediterranean, they had canaled, a way passage through it, so it was a port city, tons of wealth, tons of travel, uh, a lot of philosophy. But you need to know this about Corinth, is that, like I said, the arcade was like grooming children to one day enjoy Vegas. This was the OG Vegas. This is the original Sin City. Because not only was it wealthy, there was, there was like great licentiousness through the city, markedly because at the top, of the hill overlooking all of the city was the temple to a particular deity uh, in Greek mythology. So a lot of the Greek towns would be known for various things. Well, Corinth, the deity that they chose, like, uh, we'll, be, we'll be known by this, was Aphrodite, the goddess of love and sex. And so that had a literal ripple down effect throughout the entire city. In fact, there was a verb that was coined by one of the philosophers of the age called Corinthomai, which was to have lustful sex. The name of the town became the term, the term for like sultry, lustful sex, Corinthomai. Because at that temple of Aphrodite were a thousand cult prostitutes where you could worship. 
And so sailors would come in for trade or the people that would travel there for the worship, per se, at the deity of Aphrodite, which they would find these temple prostitutes, male and female, where they could pay money and give themselves over to defilement of the flesh. That's Corinth. Now, you gotta be wondering, like, what, what in the world? Like, how did Paul, who wrote 1 Corinthians, end up there, of all places? Like, that seems like a super odd destination. Like, of all the cities of all the world, I'm gonna go to the Vegas of Greece. That's nuts. Well, here's how. In Acts 18, the Lord sets the stage for how Paul would get there. In Acts 18, um, Paul has come out of Athens, another Greek city, and there in Athens, he is uh, debating, or rather explaining, to the philosophers of the day. He was at Mars Hill, or the Areopagus, where they would gather, and the philosophers of the day would talk and present new ideas. And he's walking through the town, and he sees all the gods, and there was an unknown god, in case they forgot one. They're like, we don't want to offend anybody, so unknown guy. He's like, hey, the, the god that you say is unknown, let me declare to you who he is. He's the god of all. He doesn't dwell in a temple, he doesn't need human hands, but rather in him, by him, and for him are all things. And he has overlooked the times of ignorance, but now he's holding men accountable to the sins through his son, Jesus Christ. And the Athenians are like, yeah, that's interesting, but no. And Paul, like just a few come to trust in Christ and the rest don't. And so Paul leaves Athens, and you know he's leaving Athens discouraged. And it's shocking that having left Athens discouraged, he's like, I know where I'll go next. Sin City. Like, if that's me, that's not where I'm going. If, if I'm a Messianic Jew who's trusted in Jesus and there's just this town given over to defilement, I'd probably be thinking, like, they deserve that. Like, pagans? Temple to Aphrodite? But not God. God's like, no, Paul. That's exactly where you're going. You have to go to Corinth. I came for sinners. Where else would I send you? Like that's the reason Jesus came. All are dead in sin. You've gotta go to Corinth. It makes total sense. That's why Jesus came. And so Paul travels 50 miles from Athens to Corinth. And when he gets there, something crazy happens. Remember, he's discouraged likely because of what happened in Athens. Like, Lord, you've called me to be an apostle. Like you'd think that my message would bear fruit and people would trust Christ, and they didn't. And so there in Corinth, he meets two people. Hey, what's your name? Priscilla and Aquila. Oh, cool, where are you from? We're from Rome. Paul might have said, hey, I'm from Rome. I'm a Roman, I'm a, not from Rome, but I'm a Roman citizen. I'm from Tarsus. Oh, cool. So, hey, great, we're both Roman citizens. Well, we're actually not Roman. We're Jews that lived in Rome. Paul would have been like, I'm a Jew. That's incredible. And they would have been like, well, we're Jews, but we've trusted in Jesus. We believe in the Messiah that has to come. He's like, I've met Jesus. He knocks me off my horse. I saw the resurrected Christ. And, and all of a sudden, they're like, that's crazy. Hey, what do you do for a living? And Priscilla and like, we make tents. He's like, I make tents. It's this crazy reunion. And so there they are. God drops in his lap this couple that they have everything in common. As an encouragement and refreshment into the soul. And in case that's not enough, the next thing that we read in Acts is two other people show up on the scene. You know who shows up on the scene? Silas and Timothy. They come down from Macedonia, another Greek city, and they're like, dude, they got the band back together. It's like Rolling Stones reunion tour. They're like, let's do this. And so, what would they do? As Jewish believers, Messianic Jews, they're like, let's go to the synagogue. That's our offense. They roll into the synagogue. They're like, hey, 
we're, we're gonna show you something from all these prophecies. The Lord said he's gonna send someone, the anointed one, it's Jesus, he's come, he's raised from the dead, he's ascended into heaven, he's coming again, it's Jesus. And like in Athens, they're like, no, nah, we're not having that. You gotta imagine that discouragement then again, except for the fact that Paul goes right next door. It says to the house next door to the synagogue, knock, 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 his name was Titus Justus, just some Greek dude who loved God, comes to faith, and then wildfire through Corinth. Because sinners need a savior. They knew like their life was in vain, and so all of a sudden, people are coming to trust in Christ. God gives Paul a vision, and he says, no one is going to harm you in this city. Speak clearly, for I have many people in this city. Now God, standing outside of time, I love this, because no one had come to faith yet except for Titus Justice. Paul, God is like, Paul, I've got many people here. There's gonna be a harvest, and yet not one of them, or maybe just one had come. But God is like, you just preach, and they're gonna come to life. I'm about to raise the dead in Corinth. And then, because of some, uh, an uprising as the Jews bring him before uh, the pro-council there, he's like, hey, this has nothing to do with me. This is like some kind of Jewish heritage thing, so I don't have anything to do with it, but because of that, they kind of get run out of town. And Paul goes to Ephesus, and then Apollos, this other believer, goes to Corinth, and Paul is writing now to that baby church. It was the first Greek church that God planted through Paul. And now he's writing them a letter because they were baby Christians. They're like, hey, what do we do about food sacrifice to idols? What do we do about marriage? What do we do about singleness? What do we do about these, these gifts that we have from God? What do we do? What do we do? What do we do? And Paul's like, I'm, I'm gonna write. I'm gonna tell you so that you be matured up in Christ and glorify him. And so that's what we have here in Corinth in 1 Corinthians. And so that church, and then here is a little bit of the, the book. So here's just a flyover in case um, you're not familiar with it. So we're gonna talk about 1 Corinthians 1 today, but in 2, Paul says, for I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. He's like, I, I'm just gonna preach the gospel, whether it's in your marriage, in the way you eat, in the way you drink, in the way that you use your gifts, it's all Jesus. And then he gets to chapter three, and he's like, hey, I planted the church, Apollos watered the church, but God made it grow. He's like, you think we're something? You think Apollos is something? You think Cephas is something? No, it's all God. He's just using us, we're just servants. And then in chapter four, Paul, because they were not just elevating like who they thought they liked the best as far as their preacher or pastor, they were also elevating themselves. And so Paul asked them a rhetorical question. He says, hey, what did you receive? Or what did you, what do you have that you didn't receive? And if you did receive it, why are you boasting as though you didn't? He's like, I know all that you have is from Christ and for Christ. Why are you boasting against each other? Then he gets to chapter five and he says, Jesus Christ is your Passover lamb, which from the teaching of the Hebrew scriptures, they would have known like, we're sinners. There's this perfect spotless lamb that was given. The blood has covered us so that death and wrath would pass over us. Christ, our Passover lamb. In chapter six, he says, flee from sexual immorality. Every sin a man commits or outside of the body, but he who sins sexually sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? You are bought at a price, therefore honor God with your body. That's 1 Corinthians 6, and we're saying flee. 
immorality of sexuality, but then in seven, he's gonna say, have sex. That married people need to have sex, and it's one of the greatest provisions to resist the temptation of Satan because of your lack of self-control. He's like, this is a gift, but it's in the context of marriage. And then they're like, but what about the people who aren't married? And so 1 Corinthians 7 has the greatest message for singles. In case in the church sometimes like, man, parenting and marriage, we're gonna get to 1 Corinthians 7 and, and the exaltation of singleness, as Paul says, I wish all were as I am. Because the single person is concerned about the Lord's will and how to please the Lord. Whereas the married person's concerned about their spouse and how to please them. He's exalting singleness. In 1 Corinthians 8, he's gonna say, everything is for the Father, under the glory of the Father, and through the Son. Amazing summary statement. When he gets to nine, he says, I become all things to all people so that by all means I might win some. The contextualization of the gospel. Then he gets to 10, and he says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. This summation statement of glorify God and enjoy him forever as the Westminster Catechism says. Get to 11 and it's the Lord's Supper, one of two ordinances, the Lord's Supper and baptism, and the longest passage on the Lord's Supper, his body and blood broken and shed for us as we take of it, as we do here on a regular basis. Then it gets to uh, 12, where they're talking about the gifts in the body and how they aren't individual. The hand can't say, I don't need the body, but rather it's all joined together, rising up with Christ the head, intertwined. 13, about love. You've heard it at marriages, it's not about marriage, it's about the Christian life. And that if we have all things, faith to move mountains, surrender our body to the flames, but we don't have love, we're nothing. You're a nuisance. Then you get to 14, and in chapter 14 he says, hey, the gifts that you're given, therefore, the encouragement, upbuilding, and consolation of the body. That's the purpose of the gifts. Then in 15, he's like, I know that you've heard that some say there is no resurrection or the resurrection's already taken place. Let me tell you all about the resurrection and the importance of it in the second coming of Christ. And then in 16, the verse that I'm sure you've heard, it's kind of a bumper sticker Christianity verse of be watchful, stand firm in the faith, Act like men, be strong. And it's kind of like a lot of times people will end there and it's like this John Wayne Christianity like, act like men, be strong. But pull that of context from the next verse which says, let all that you do be done in love. It's truth and grace. Jesus who was full of truth and grace giving us the wholeness of that right there at the end of the letter. Let all that you do be done in love. It is an incredible letter of gold given to us and preserved these 2,000 years. So, where are we going today? Called by Jesus, gifted by Jesus, and kept by Jesus. The reason why you're hearing me say Jesus, Jesus, Jesus is because 13 times in nine verses, the word Jesus, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ our Lord, he and him, either his name or pronouns, 13 times in nine verses. The whole refrain is this is all by Jesus, for Jesus, unto him. So one, called by Jesus. I'm gonna call this past grace. Called by Jesus. Here's why, 1 Corinthians 1, Paul, 
called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called, there it is again, to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Three times this verb kaleo, which is to be called, called by God, Paul is saying, I was called by the will of God to be an apostle. He says, what happened? When Paul was called, do you know what he was doing? He was a bounty hunter for Christians. On his horse, headed to Damascus to take prison and persecute and kill Christians. That's what he was doing when he was called. When Christ came to him as blazing sun, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He would have been like, I'm not persecuting you. What are you talking about? He's like, what you do to my body, you do to me. Paul was called when he was killing. Similarly, when we were called, this past grace, we were dead. Dead in our sins and trespasses. The scriptures make clear in Ephesians 2. But we were made alive. We were not alive and then God's making us better. We were dead dead, like Lazarus in the tomb. When Jesus comes to Bethany and Lazarus is there in the tomb, there was no amount of better or good or works or unction or effort or bootstrapping that Lazarus could ever do to get out of the grave. He was dead. Simply, Jesus called him, Lazarus, come out. And he comes out. Dude walked out in burial grave clothes, to which Jesus said, take the grave clothes off of him. When Jesus calls a person, they respond. It's the effectual call of God upon a person through Jesus, that irresistible grace. And so a lot of times you read the gospels and it's like, you know, this is funny. He, Jesus comes to the fishermen and they're mending their nets or you got Levi sitting in the tax collector booth and he's like, leave your nets and follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. And they're like, oh, cool. I was looking for a new job anyway. That's great. Cool, I'll go with you. Like, you're reading it, you're like, is that really how that happened? Like, did he really just like, yeah, I'm kind of done collecting taxes. Sounds like a better deal. I'll follow you. But it's the effectual call of God. When God calls a person, he raises the dead. He's calling out Lazarus. And Lazarus can do nothing but stand and be like, yes, Lord, your servant's listening. Here I am. And so it is with you. He's called you if you are in Christ it's like the first time I called Laura. I got her number, I didn't even know her last name. It was Laura Pinecove is what was saved in my, my phone because she worked at Pinecove. And when I called her, you better believe she picked up. It was me calling. <laughs> she didn't pick up, it went to, voice, it went to voicemail. <laughs> but when God calls, we pick up. It's John 1.13, it says, who were born not of blood, which means bloodline or lineage. It's been said God has no grandchildren. He either has sons and daughters or nowhere in between. Not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh. Meaning like, I'm just gonna be a better person. I'm gonna do good. I'm gonna do good in life. It'll be the will of the flesh that I become saved. And it says, nor of the will. Meaning like, you know what? Let's see, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, scriptures, Old Testament prophecies, I think I'll become a believer. Not of the will either. It says, but of the will of God. That if the will of God, as he calls us, we're called. And what you were called to be, it says to the church of God that's in Corinth, to those sanctified, the verb there is made holy, set apart entirely unto God. But it doesn't stop there. It says in Christ Jesus, called to be 
saints. Now this, this verb that it says sanctified in Christ Jesus, it's a passive verb, meaning uh, it's being done to us. It, it, I can't sanctify myself. I can't make myself a better person. I have no ability to do that. I have no ability to get myself out of sin or make myself more into the righteousness of Christ. It's what he does. He sanctifies us. So I came across this. Um, I love art, and so a, a lot of times that stuff just like pulls me in, and, and I was looking at this. It's a picture of Michelangelo. He did something that's really lesser known of all of his works. He was called the master. He created this, it's called the deposition or the deposition where they took down Jesus from the cross. You see Nicodemus behind him. As we knew that Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea came for the body, you can see Mary, uh, his mother with his cheek against there and Mary Magdalene as well helping. But the deposition, bringing him off the cross. This is interesting. Michelangelo was always doing commissioned work, either for a church or some benefactor. This one in particular, no one commissioned him to do. You know why? This one was for him. It was the last thing he ever did, and he made it for his own tomb. The deposition he made for him, and it was made by him. And that's like sanctification. It's by Christ, and it's for Christ. But here's the interesting thing. Look at that picture again, and look at the face of Nicodemus. It's not Nicodemus. Michelangelo made himself Nicodemus. It's a self-portrait. That's Michelangelo's face. He put himself in it. The master, making it by him and for him, also chiseled it of him. And this is sanctification. Where he says, those sanctified in Christ Jesus, he is making you for him, by him, he's the one sanctifying, and it's of him. He's putting the face of Jesus in you. He's not making you a better version of you. He's making you into Jesus, that as you love and live and speak, you are more and more like Jesus. This is called to be saints. It feels a little redundant, right? Like, wait, you just said we're sanctified, and now you're saying we're saints. In the word, it would be like, uh, in the English, It'd be like, you've been made holy and now you are holy. It's like, yeah, we get it. What's the difference? Well, one is a spiritual reality. The verb, you've been made holy. That's a spiritual reality. The next one where he says you've been called, again called, to be saints, it's a spiritual identity. It's an identity and a mentality. I'll say often, you are not a sinner who saints. You're a saint who sins, and it makes a world of difference. As your identity informs your activity, it really, really matters. And then it says, as a result, together with all those who, who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Let, let, me, let me tell you something. In Ukraine right now, they are calling upon the Lord Jesus. There was a news reporter that in the background, they all of a sudden saw in the freezing cold in the town square, all these believers come together, get on their knees, and start praying. In the Ukraine right now, pastors and Christians are saying Bibles are sold out. You can't get a Bible in the Ukraine right now because people are clamoring to know truth and they're considering their own mortality and eternity and are desperate and longing to make sense 
of a really hard situation, they are calling upon Jesus. And what I would say to us here in the American church is that we are in a worse war. And I don't mean to belittle what's happening in the Ukraine. As a result, sadly, there will be physical death and government oppression. But what we are in the war of right now is a war of immorality. Because I think in our comfort, we are not calling upon Jesus in the desperation like our brothers and sisters in the Ukraine. And we've got sleeper cells of evil that we carry in our back pockets and on our screens and the lust of the flesh and the comforts that we have. It's a danger, this immorality and the war that we're in as we wrestle not against the flesh and blood but against the evil and principalities. And so I wanna ask, because it says um, in Exodus that the high priest, if they would walk in, they had a gold plate across their forehead that said, holy to the Lord, meaning set apart, Holy, H-O-L-Y, and holy, entirely, W-H-O-L-L-Y. Entirely set apart, holy unto the Lord. And so that begs the question, or is there an area of life that we're not calling upon Jesus? Like, man, not in my dating life, not, not with my finances, not in my job, not in my roommate that I can't stand. I'm not calling upon Jesus for that. Or is there an area of life that is not holy to God? Like, man, you can have all this, but, but this thing, man, I gotta keep the reins on that. But instead, he says, you're sanctified and you're called to be saints. You're called by Jesus. And if you are called, then you are gifted by Jesus. If called by Jesus' past grace, then gifted by Jesus' present grace. It says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's strange, right? You're like, grace to you, like they're already saved. They're believers, why grace to you? Because we're saved by grace and we are sustained by grace. Grace began a work, it was justification and now continually every day this sanctification. So Paul's saying grace to you, never forget he saved you, he sustains you, he saved you, he keeps you safe. You know what I tell my wife every day and she tells me, I love you, multiple times a day. Now you could argue like, wait, didn't you tell her that on your wedding day? Like on July 16th, 2011, didn't you guys say like, hey, I've forsaken all others, I covenant myself to you. Like didn't, you already said that. Why do you keep saying it all day and every day? Why do you do that? Because we need reminders and we need that love restated and relived on a daily basis. And so it is in the covenant relationship we have from the Father through Jesus, he's like, grace to you, grace. I know you're in a war, I know you're in hard times, I know you're tempted, I know there's sin struggles, grace and peace to you, that's sustaining grace. And then there's saving grace, I think, give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. Now it's not sustaining grace, he's talking about saving grace. It's all grace, which is a gift, as I said, gifted by Jesus. So in Romans 6.23, it says the wages of sin is death. Meaning if you do sin, you'll get death in this life and forever in the next in a very real place called hell, separated from the goodness of God forever. But the free gift of God is eternal life, meaning now and forevermore. In, where is it found, God? Where will I find that? In Christ Jesus, our Lord. And so even grace, as you're gifted by Jesus, grace is a gift, that's saving grace. 
But I think, because we're here in a church, many of us are like, yeah, I get it, I'm saved. Well, my question is, Paul's writing and he says, I thank God for the grace given to you. Are we doing the same? Are we praying for unbelievers? Are we sharing the gospel with unbelievers? Are we thanking God once they become believers? Are we just like, man, I'm saved. Like, really, that's all that matters right now. Spurgeon said, have you no wish for others to be saved? Then you're not saved yourself. Be sure of that. Because a saved one is a sent one. A saved one is a sharing one. As you share, like Jim just said, I'm a a beggar at the household of God telling others where to find the bread, saving grace. There's also the fruit of grace. But that fruit of grace doesn't come until you have salvific grace. But once you're saved, like this house key right here, to our house, if my kids have this, if I give this to my kids, they can unlock that front door and inside our house is everything they need, food and clothing and they can bathe and they've got just everything they need. And so as we've been given the gift of salvation, grace, then God gives us this key, this gifting to those spiritual blessings in the heavenly realms, including the gifts of the Spirit for the church. And so it says, that in every way you are enriched in him in all speech and in all knowledge. He's talking about spiritual gifts here. Even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. We, had a, we have a fig tree in the backyard and last year when we had that horrible freeze, dude, that thing died. It was covered in ice, the ground froze, dead. But we should probably call the fig tree Lazarus. This year it like started sprouting branches and no joke, there's like, there's figs on this tree. The top half is dead and now it's like growing new branches and there's life there. There's literal tiny little figs growing off of this. A community group guy was like, what are you gonna do with your figs? I'm like, nothing. He's like, can I have them to make some jam? I'm like, one, how do you have time to make jam? Two, how do you know how to make fig jam? It's like the whole thing was strange to me. The way that I knew that tree was alive and not dead anymore is because it had fruit. Paul is saying, the way I know, church in Corinth, that you're alive is I see the gifting in you and the testimony of Christ that's being confirmed as you live this out. Living things bear fruit. And so it is with the church. And it says, so that you're not lacking in any gift. There's no lacking in any gift when you're a part of the church. When you're a called one, you become a gifted one. But it doesn't always work individually. Like I was, we had this leak in our roof and the the wall was bulging out and watermark guy who who does construction was like, man, there could be mold back there. You need to cut out the the drywall. And because I'm cheap, I was like, well, I'll I'll do it. So I got a circular saw. And I just start like, (laughs) with a circular saw, like going up through the wall. I would hit a nail every now and then, like sparks flying, smell of burning. I'm like, forget the mold, the house is gonna burn down. I get to the top, I come over with a, I'm at a blade. It's like kicking back, open blade. Thank God I wear glasses now. I start coming down, and as I'm coming down, I'm like, oh shoot, because I see below there's an outlet. I'm like, I'm probably cutting into electricity right now. And, and like the, the drywall dust throughout the room is like terrible. So I text him in the middle of him like, hey bro, is there some tool you're supposed to use for this? He's like, yeah, you need to use a drywall saw while you're holding a dry vac to suck out all the dust. I'm like, yeah, I don't have those. (laughs) He's like, why don't you just let me do it? I didn't have all the gifts. 
or the tools. Collectively, the church has all the gifts and the tools that we need to build each other up and to live this Christian life. There's no Lone Ranger Christianity where it's like, me and Jesus, spiritual, not, not religious, so I don't have to be a part of a church. The Bible knows nothing of that. He's like, no, you've been given a gift, and the gift's not for you, it's for the body, for the building up of the church, of which Christ is the head for my glory. And if you remove yourself, dude, you got the drywall saw. They need you, get back. And so all the gifts of administration and teaching and serving and leadership and hospitality, they're all needed. And if you're in Christ, you've got them for this church and to reach the city. And it's a beautiful thing. You're called by Jesus, gifted by Jesus, and you are lastly kept by Jesus. You're kept by Jesus. This is future grace. In verse seven, starting in the second part, as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, that is the second coming, Paul writes to Titus and he says, it is the blessed hope, the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. As you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. It says, as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, Second coming. Uh, the word wait fails us in English. In the Greek, it's appendectomai, which I don't know why it sounds like appendectomy. It has nothing to do with that, but that's how you can remember it. But it's not just wait. It's eagerly waiting, like a longing, a watching, a desirous waiting. Not just waiting, passing time, but like, where is it? Where is he? Where is the coming? Yesterday, after or Friday, after Hill's birthday, Laura said, hey, Hill, is there anything that would have made your birthday better today? And he goes, without even split-second hesitation, he goes, yeah, heaven. And that's not because he's a pastor's kid. I guarantee you, he gets more spankings than your kids. <laughs> I think it's because he's a child. And somewhere along the way, sadly, we're like, nah, this life's actually pretty good. I got my food, my money, my clothes, my girl, my whatever. And we stop longing. We stop longing for the second coming. In his mind, he's like, yeah, that would make it better. I think one of the reasons that we don't long for the second coming, we don't long and watch for the second coming, and so we live as if the first coming never even happened. That our life doesn't reflect, reflect the first coming because we're not looking and longing for the second coming. Friends, in the New Testament, there are 27 books or letters. There are 260 chapters. Guess how many times the second coming of Christ is mentioned? Five, 10, let's be generous and say 50. 27 books, maybe twice per book. 318 times. God has a blinking light throughout scriptures, saying he's coming again. Jesus is coming. Hold on, hold fast. I'm coming again. I know it's hard, I know it's long, I know it's like desperate times, I know you're tempted, I know you're struggling, I know cancer is hard, I know joblessness is hard. I'm coming again and I will keep you and I will sustain you until I come, eagerly awaiting 
It says in 2 Timothy 4, 8, it says, he will give the crown of righteousness for those who eagerly await his return. Not just waiting like you're in jail with tick marks on the wall just passing time, but like it's an Amazon delivery, like, oh, dude, it's left the facility. Oh, it's in transit. Oh, oh, it's arrived, and you go to the front door, it's here. You're looking and longing for the coming of Christ, and it changes everything about how you live. Laura went away on a girls' weekend, and I had the kids, and you know when Sunday rolled around, I, I knew Laura was coming back, so it's like, all right, we gotta, like, you gotta get bathed. Uh, here, put the Cheetos down, eat a piece of broccoli, because I need to say you ate broccoli. Put the toys away, get the flowers, and then we're watching the map. Kids, Kids, she's on 6.35. It says 15 minutes. Hey, she just turned on 75. Kids, she's on Coit. Kids, she's out front. Go, go, go. And we go to the front, and there's mom, and hugs and embraces because we're longing for her return. Well, may we long for his return. And it says this. After we wait for the revealing of Jesus, it says, who will sustain you till the end Till the end, he'll sustain you. You remember my daughter? Where I'm like, I got you. Whether we're going to the ER or the tweezers or whatever, I got you, I'm not going anywhere. God promises, and he's not man that he should lie. He will keep you. He will sustain you till the end. And it says, guiltless on the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not guilt trip, guiltless. You have the righteousness of Christ. You're mine, you're my sons and daughters. I've called you. He bookends that whole passage. He says, you've been called. Don't forget, you're mine. And if I called you, I gift you. And if I gift you, I'll keep you. And I'm coming back, I'll sustain you into the fellowship of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray now. Father, thank you for that. Thank you, we were dead, Lord, dead. I remember my death, the sinful death that I love so much and of nothing of my own accord, you called us. And not only that, you've gifted us as this family. We're family here, Lord. Under the headship of Christ, and not only that, you keep us. It's a promise, it's a bedrock, anchor for the soul, promise that you will sustain us to the end. And so we praise you. We have nothing to do but praise you and to look and long for the coming of Jesus and that we would be found faithful at his appearing. Amen. Friends, when Penny and I got that little treat, her fingernails, she said, Daddy, can I ride home with you? I want some daddy-daughter time. I was like, yeah, baby, get in the car. Friends, this is the arcade. This world that we're living in is the arcade and nobody lives in the arcade. You don't live there. It's so temporary. But one day, we're going home with dad and we'll be there forevermore as Jesus holds us fast until the end. He promised. And so now you get to stand and sing that truth that he will hold you fast.